Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to the season finale of Destination Disaster. I am your host, Devin Carney. It's hard to believe that we've already reached the end of yet another season here at Destination Disaster. While I am sad, I think a break for a couple of weeks is much needed. I feel as though I may be at a point mentally where I am exhausted, and instead of continuing to publish episodes, I'll take a break, write some content, and begin recording again. I want to make sure that the quality I produce for you only continues to increase. Here in the next couple of days, I should be able to announce some exciting news in regard to the podcast and an opportunity that has presented itself. More information will become available here soon. As always, let's review a few housekeeping notes before we begin the episode. On March 11, 2022, President Biden granted a major disaster declaration for the state of Tennessee due to the results of a damaging winter storm in February. Those counties affected are Crockett, Fayette, Haywood, Lauderdale, Shelby, Tipton, and Weekly, the Tennessee Emergency Management Agency announced. The ice storm brought freezing rain, sleet, and snow to the west and middle Tennessee on February 3rd and 4th. On the storm's first day, more than 140,000 homes and businesses lost power. Flooding was also reported. A Haywood County motorist died when he crashed his pickup into a tree that had fallen onto a highway. In Shelby County, ice accumulated on city streets and trees, which sagged and dropped limbs on power lines and homes. The storm caused $12 million in damage to the county's electric system, Lee said. The current situation in Ukraine remains fierce and uncertain as Russia continues its invasion and merciless bombardment of major Ukrainian cities. The shelling, missile strikes, and fighting have led to more than 2.8 million refugees forced to flee from their homes, many with less than a bag of the personal belongings that they once owned. At the end of this episode, I am going to share some donation links, and if you are able to donate, please do so. On this episode, you are going to hear a lot of discussion in regard to the size of Tornado based on the Enhanced Fujita Scale, or EF. In an early episode where we directly covered tornadoes, I did outline the scale. However, since then we have grown considerably, so for redundancy, I'm going to cover it quickly once again. The Enhanced Fujita Scale, abbreviated as EF Scale, rates the intensity of tornadoes in some countries including the United States and Canada based on the severity of damage they cause. The Enhanced Fujita Scale replaced the decommissioned Fujita Scale that was introduced in 1971 by Ted Fujita. Operational use in the United States began on February 1st, 2007, followed by Canada on April 1, 2013. It has also been proposed for use in France. The scale has the same basic design as the original Fujita scale, which includes six intensity categories from 0 to 5, representing increasing degrees of damage. 
It was revised to reflect better examinations of tornado damage surveys in order to align wind speeds more closely with associated storm damage. Better standardizing and elucidating what was previously subjective and ambiguous, it also adds more types of structures and vegetation, expands degree of damage, and better accounts for variables such as differences in construction quality. An EF unknown, EFU category was later added for tornadoes that cannot be rated due to lack of damage evidence. I'm going to now run you through the EF scale. An EF0 tornado has wind speeds that range in between 65 and 85 miles per hour. This will note minor damage with a few roof tiles missing from buildings. An EF1 tornado has wind speeds that range in between 86 and 110 miles per hour and contains moderate damage. This will include overturned mobile homes. An EF2 tornado has wind speeds that range between 111 and 135 miles per hour. This is when considerable damage occurs and includes mobile homes being destroyed. An EF3 tornado has wind speeds that range between 136 and 165 miles per hour. This is noted by severe damage or when homes start getting destroyed. An EF4 has winds in between 166 and 200 miles per hour. This is noted by extreme damage and when the homes become leveled and cars are thrown. And finally, an EF5 tornado. This has wind speeds in excess of 200 miles per hour and notes massive damage. High-rise buildings at this point will become severely damaged and cars can be thrown for miles. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into the finale episode for the season. Here in the United States, many of us welcome the warming spring weather and tornado season at the same time. While tornadoes occur throughout the year, the most severe ones happen between March and June throughout what is traditionally known as Tornado Alley. For a person who lives on the East Coast, we aren't prone to many serious tornadoes, but they do happen. For me, tornadoes represent the sheer force that Mother Nature has to offer. When you see one form and the destructive capabilities that a tornado possesses, this is what keeps me in awe. This week, we are going to look at what a true worst case scenario tornado event resembles and what effects on a community these storms can cause. More specifically, we'll be taking a look at the Moore, Oklahoma tornado that struck on May 20th, 2013. At peak intensity, the wind speed recorded by meteorological instruments was measured at 210 miles per hour or 340 kilometers per hour and measured well over one mile wide. Conditions leading up to the storm were already favorable for the formation of tornadoes, as between May 18th and May 20th, a significant severe weather event had already been occurring. On May 20th, 2013, a prominent central upper trough moved eastward toward the central United States, with a lead upper low pivoting over the Dakotas and upper Midwest region. A southern stream shortwave trough and a moderately strong polar jet moved east northeastward over the southern Rockies to the southern Great Plains and Ozarks area, with severe thunderstorms forming during the peak hours of heating. With the influence of moderately strong cyclonic flow aloft, the air mass was expected to become unstable across much of the southern Great Plains, Ozarks, and Middle Mississippi Valley by the afternoon hours. Evidence of an unstable air mass included temperatures in the low to mid-80s, dew points that ranged in the upper 60s to the lower 70s, and cape values that ranged between 3,500 and 5,000. Deep layer wind shear speeds of 40 to 50 knots enhanced storm structure and intensity. The most intense severe weather activity was expected to come across the Great Plains, specifically central Oklahoma, during the afternoon hours on that Monday. Luckily, due to the significant instability already recorded, the National Weather Service in Norman, Oklahoma was able to identify and issue advisories well ahead of the tornado outbreak that would ultimately occur between May 18th and May 20th. 
While not 100% accurate, this gave all in the path of these storms to have at least some time to prepare for any eventuality that a tornado could impact. On May 20th, at approximately 1.10pm Central Daylight Time, the Storm Prediction Center issued a tornado watch for the eastern two-thirds of Oklahoma, northwestern Arkansas, and portions of north-central Texas. Initially, when the tornado watch was issued, conditions did not seem favorable to produce a strong tornado such as the one that struck Moore, Oklahoma, placing the percent value in the 20% range or low probability that one or more tornadoes could reach the EF2 and EF5 intensity within the watch area. As conditions progressively developed throughout the morning and early afternoon hours, the thunderstorm that would eventually spawn the tornado that struck Moore, Oklahoma developed at approximately 2 p.m. Central Daylight Time. By 2.12, the thunderstorm had already reached severe status. As the storm continued to grow in intensity, the key indicators that a supercell was forming, such as large amounts of hail, torrential rainfall, strong winds, and substantial downbursts had been recorded. Rotation at the mid-level was not immediately identified as wind shear was being reported throughout central Oklahoma. However, this rotation was identified before the storm even reached the severe status. By 2.40 p.m., rotation continued to increase, prompting a tornado warning to be issued for far northeastern Grady, western Cleveland, northern McLean, and southern Oklahoma counties. Due to the nature of these storms and intensity that was predicted, due to the nature of these storms and intensity that was predicted, news stations in the viewing area suspended their normal programming and shifted into storm coverage mode to provide the residents in the viewing area with up-to-the-minute updates on the track of the storms that could potentially produce tornadoes. At 2.56 p.m., the tornado formed in the northeastern portion of Grady County, and initial damage from the storm was minimal and rated as EF1. Continuing through downtown Newcastle, Oklahoma, the tornado intensified rapidly, strengthening and striking a semi-rural neighborhood and leveling several homes. By 3.01 p.m., with the tornado now a large wedge-shaped tornado, the National Weather Service issued a tornado emergency for southern Oklahoma City and northern Cleveland County. For those who may not live in an area prone to tornadoes, a tornado emergency is an enhanced version of a tornado warning which is used by the National Weather Service during imminent, significant tornado occurrences in highly populated area. Mainly, it is a last-ditch effort to call for those in the immediate path of a strong tornado to quickly find shelter. On radar, the signature of this tornado could have only been described as massive. The Twin Lakes Dual Polarization Next Ride Radar detected a debris signature nearly one mile in diameter within the hook echo. A hook echo is a pendant or hook-shaped weather radar signature as part of some supercell thunderstorms. It is found in lower portions of a storm as air and precipitation flow into a mesocyclone, resulting in a curved feature of reflectivity. Back on the ground, the tornado had grown and maintained EF3 intensity as it jumped the Canadian River. During this crossing, a decommissioned bridge on US-62 and US-277 was severely damaged. The strong and rapidly intensifying tornado only continued and followed Southwest 149th Street directly into the city of Moore, Oklahoma, and into southern Oklahoma City. This is the point at which the tornado grew into EF-4 status after several leveled homes were noted following the impact. The tornado weakened briefly to an EF-3 for mere minutes before re-intensifying back into EF-4 status episode is where more graphic details of this episode will occur. If you are particularly squeamish, you may want to skip through certain parts. The intense tornado continued its track, maintaining EF4 status, and impacted the Orr family farm. This farm was home to a petting zoo and hundreds of horses used for riding. Unfortunately, the resulting impact left over 100 horses dead, with some having been thrown into power lines or thrown on top of buildings. Every building at Celestial Acres was either leveled or swept away at EF4 intensity. 
The ground on the property was scoured to bare soil, debris from structures was granulated, and vehicles were thrown and stripped down to their frames. Surveyors noted that based on the contextual damage, the tornado was likely at EF5 intensity in this area, though the construction quality of the affected buildings only permitted an EF4 rating. At Plaza Towers Elementary School, a cinder block wall collapsed, killing seven students as the wall fell on those students attempting to take cover. The neighborhood immediately behind the school experienced more than a dozen homes being leveled and swept down to their foundations. Continuing through the city in a northeasterly direction, more medical center was next, with severe damage occurring and even a car being flung onto the roof of the hospital. The northern part of the damage path, it is reported that a 7-Eleven was completely destroyed, with four being killed, including a three-month-old infant. The large tornado continued to catastrophically damage key buildings throughout the city to include the Moore Public School Administration Building, a large, well-bolted home that was cleanly swept from its foundations at EF5 intensity. Following this impact, the tornado began to weaken to EF3 strength, and by 3.35 p.m., the tornado had finally dissipated. This tornado is reported to have thrown debris at least 10 miles, and some smaller items being thrown as far as Midwest City, which is nearly 15 miles away. Immediately following the tornado impact on May 20th, Governor of Oklahoma Mary Fallon declared a state of emergency, freeing up additional resources and activating the state's emergency operations plans. Following this declaration, President Obama declared a major disaster in Oklahoma and began deploying federal aid into the affected regions. The sheer size and response of these resources is truly what a coordinated response must encompass. Local and state resources began responding as soon as conditions permitted, and it is my belief that in addition to the advanced warning given to those in the affected areas and the swift response from local, state, and federal agencies, more lives were saved than were lost. This is what a combined response should encompass. Local resources that respond in the immediate aftermath, followed by state resources and federal agencies to aid in the overall recovery process. This is why it is so imperative that exercises take place and must include all stakeholders that are responsible for recovery operations. In initial reports concerning casualties, it was reported that 91 bodies of those who perished in the impact had been received at the state medical examiner's office. This was then corrected to 24 victims after communicating with local funeral homes that had incorrectly stated the reception of dissidents. In addition to the deaths, 212 injuries were also reported as a result of the tornado. Property damage as a result totaled 1,150 homes destroyed, with entire communities being leveled and swept away during the catastrophic impact. In total, $2 billion in damage was reported. Damage inspectors noted that many of the homes and businesses lacked adequate bolting to their foundations. It was found that many of these buildings either were just nailed into the foundation or were simply just placed on the concrete slab. The two schools that were struck, both were found to not have safe rooms as the school system believed that tornadoes mostly struck in the later portions of the day, when students and staff were already at home. This is inherently false, and this is a direct cause for those students who lost their lives as they were unable to find suitable shelter. According to the American Society of Engineers, both schools that suffered direct hit posed critical flaws that led to the complete destruction. Both Plaza Towers and Briarwood were destroyed when an EF5 tornado struck. Neither school had safe rooms. Seven students were killed at Plaza Towers after walls of the third grade center, a building next to the main school collapsed. At Briarwood, at least 24 pupils and teachers were injured when the door's center block walls fell. In addition, construction documents obtained through an open records request show that Briarwood Elementary was designed by a now-defunct architectural and engineering firm whose founders were disciplined for design flaws in other projects. 
It's unfortunate that in events like this, we learn of companies that don't understand the scope of work that they are doing and only seem to care about their revenue. When we turn a blind eye to building codes, this will be the outcome every single time. Students and staff should not have to question the integrity of a building that is supposed to keep them safe in the event of a tornado strike similar to this. Following the surveys undertaken following the impact in 2013, the more public school system resembles a very different model, one that is now aimed at protecting the students they serve. As of 2019, 31 of the 35 district schools now contain shelters that will protect staff and students in the event another tornado strikes the town. While an unfortunate event led to the discovery of these structures not being built to code, and archaic beliefs that thought tornadoes only strike once students have gone home for the day, and the later afternoon is no longer. Now students can learn without the worry that the building in which they spend the majority of their childhood can now protect them. In 2014, Moore became the only municipality in Oklahoma to adopt residential building codes that are strong enough to survive an EF2 tornado. The new homes and more are designed to withstand winds up to 135 miles per hour. The codes require hurricane clips, bolts connecting the frame to the foundation, narrower spaces between roof joists, and more durable garage doors, among other things. Without the adoption of these necessary building code updates, another tornado could simply strike again and do the same amount of damage as the strike in 2013. Following the event, rebuilding began and where death and destruction had ruled, life once again began to return to a sense of normalcy. Within hours, NGOs were on the ground providing immediate relief including medical aid, food, and temporary shelter. Within days, dozens of organizations descended upon more to help begin the cleanup and the process of long-term recovery. Several funds were established to support long-term recovery, including the OK Strong Fund and the Shawnee and More Recovery Fund of the Tulsa Community Foundation. With its long history of tornadoes, several funds had previously been established, including one for immediate relief and other for long-term recovery at the Oklahoma City Community Foundation. More is a completely different city now than in 2013. The city has continued to grow, and according to NPR, in addition to the 1,100 homes that were rebuilt, 375 new homes were built as well. New companies have set up shop in the city to include ComputerRx, a pharmacy software company, Starbucks, and other retailers such as LA Fitness and Sprint. While it took time for the community to rebuild, the city remains stronger and better prepared for the next tornado that will inevitably strike. With the new medical center, enhanced building codes, and stronger homes, Moore is ready for the future and can now better protect its residents. Thank you for tuning in this week. With it being the season finale, there is one more Current Events episode scheduled, and following the release of that episode, I am going to take a two-week break. Please continue to share the podcast and listen to earlier episodes. For those that have stuck around since episode one, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Go follow me on Instagram at Destination Period Disaster, and on Twitter at Dest Disaster, that is D-E-S-T-D-I-S-A-S-T-E-R. New episodes will begin releasing on April 3rd, 2022. Until then, this has been Destination Disaster.